everyone, Jessica here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some great news. You all asked for it and we delivered. Top Artist is now on YouTube, which means that you can watch a video version of our interviews so that you can see some of the incredible work that we're discussing with our artists. Just click the link in the show notes and head on over to check it out. Now, let's get on with this week's show. Gift giving is an art, and thanks to the internet, it's easier than ever to find that perfect present for someone. With so much to choose from, how do you find that special something without hours of searching? Well, that's where My Modern Med Store comes in. Since 2017, we've been curating the best creative products for makers around the world. Whether you're looking for a gift for an artist, architect, space lover, or anywhere in between, we have you covered. One of my all-time favorite things in my Modern Met store is a planter that defies gravity. Yes, really. It's the stylish, life-levitating planter, and it's perfect for all you minimalists out there. It has an angular white pot that hovers over a rich oak base, all thanks to magnets. But if you're lacking a green thumb, there's plenty more in our store to check out. As a listener of Top Artist, you can get 10% off your entire purchase when you use the code TOPARTIST10 at checkout. Again, that's Top Artist 10 for 10% off everything in my modern med store. Happy shopping. The work of the conservation photographer begins after you trip the shutter. It's what you do with those images, how you make them work. And passively putting them out for people to share and follow is not enough. This is the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast, and I'm your host, art historian Jessica Stewart. These days, it's impossible not to think about the state of our planet. Across the board, we're running into trouble, from massive wildfires and flooding to rising sea levels and the eradication of important species. Thankfully, there are people like Christina Mittermeier who dedicate their craft to shining a spotlight on what's going wrong and what we can do to help. And today, we're going to discover more about how she's using her photography to enact change as it relates to our oceans. As a marine biologist, activist, and conservation photographer, for the past 30 years, Christina has been vocal about using her art as a weapon. By telling the stories of what's happening in and around our oceans through her incredible photography, she's put pressure on governments to change their policies and empowered the public to help make a difference. But the story of how she got to where she is today wasn't a straight path. As you'll learn today, it took courage, perseverance, and a willingness to listen to the public. This has all helped Christina forge her legacy and enact real change. It may not always have been easy, but as you'll hear, with Christina's passion, anything is possible. So we pick up our chat discussing Christina's newest adventure, Sea Legacy One. Along with her partner, fellow photographer Paul Nicklin, she set sail for nearly a year in what we could call a floating studio. It's all part of a larger plan that started with Sea Legacy, a foundation that she and Nicklin started in 2014 to quote unquote, use the power of media and storytelling to amplify ocean solutions. I know that you're just back from a big trip, which I can't wait to ask you about. How does it feel to be back uh, at home? Yes, we left home in October of 2020 to get to our boat. And um, it's amazing how as a human you adapt. And so I was loving living on the boat. But there are things that you miss that uh, like your own bed, you know, <laughs> yeah. like having a proper stove and a big fridge and a, a real flushing toilet that, Big deal. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm really curious about this this last adventure you were on because I know you were just on the Sea Legacy One's maiden voyage in the Bahamas. And I'm sure by the time this episode airs, you'll be off somewhere again. So how long has this sort of floating studio and research center been in, in the works? 
So when Paul and I started Sea Legacy in 2014, it was always part of the dream. Uh, the most expensive part of working as an ocean camera person is renting the boats that take you out to sea. You're at the mercy of captains that may be cranky or may have other agendas. And more importantly, you have very limited time because it's so expensive. So we always wanted to have our own boat. And Paul Nicklin, my partner, is really the one who uh, went after this. So we were able to find the perfect vessel. We bought it at the, just before the pandemic. And then we spent almost the entire pandemic uh, retrofitting the boat from a distance. I'm thinking about getting to it until finally Paul said to me one day, let's just drive across the country because we couldn't fly. And so we packed our camper and we left home in October and made it to the boat. And off we went. In November, we were ready to sail. It was amazing. And what's even more amazing is that neither Christina nor Paul are sailors. So to realize their dream, they had to take a crash course in sailing from the previous owners and transform their boat into a real home. But all that work was well worth it when they set sail toward the Bahamas. At the end of the day, we wanted Sea Legacy 1 to be, like you said, a floating studio that allows us to spend as much time in the front lines of the story of our oceans, which is not only majestic and mysterious and interesting, it's also really beautiful. Uh, but we also wanted Sea Legacy 1 to be a symbol of hope. Wherever this boat goes, wherever we drop an anchor or arrive at a dock, we want people to see the orange sails and know that we're here to help tell the story of our oceans, to inspire people and give, uh, give our followers an opportunity to participate with us, to come on adventure. Amazing. And so how are you deciding where you'll go next? First and foremost, it's important to say, you know, that it's a sailing boat. So it takes a long time to get from A to B. We are very proud, though, that it is almost a zero carbon footprint. So the extra time is worth the effort. But um, right now, the boat is in Panama. We took it down from the Bahamas. And we are going to be working in the Panamanian side of the Caribbean and then crossing the Panama Canal and heading into the very large Pacific. So how do you pick where to go? Part of it is uh, limited by geography. Uh, we are needed in Panama, Costa Rica, Colombia, and Ecuador, the four countries that form the Eastern Pacific Tropical Seascape, because these four countries are trying to build a network of marine protected areas that keeps the international fishing fleet away from their coastal waters. And they need public support, they need inspiration, they need the media to be engaged, they need their politicians to know that people are paying attention. So we're gonna spend about four months in, in the Eastern Pacific Tropical Seascape, I am particularly excited at the idea of spending as much time as I want diving in the Galapagos and Cocos Island. And from there, we have to make some decisions. And I, I think the decision is going to be to take the boat to sail it north to Baja in Mexico, my home country. So the question is, how did Christina get to where she is today? As an award-winning photographer who has collaborated with the National Geographic, been named the Smithsonian Conservation Photographer of the Year, and is a Sony artisan of imagery, it might be hard to believe that Christina started her career and spent 20 years at Conservation International as a scientist. It's clear her love for the planet runs deep, so I was curious to find out just where did this love come from and how did it transition toward her picking up a camera? You know, I think there are two types of people on this planet. Those of us who understand that we live in a little blue marble that travels across the universe with all the resources that we will ever have right here at home. 
And then there's other people who do not seem to get that. You know, they, they either don't know or don't care about future generations, about how the limitations of our planet. I have always known that planet Earth is a special place because first of all, it's beautiful and it gives us everything we need to thrive and to be happy. And it's limited. So from the time I was really young, I could tell that our planet was heading into a lot of trouble. As a fisheries biologist, I could see that the way that we exploit the ocean is destructive, it's myopic, it's, I mean, the ethics of it are horrible. And I felt this urgency to, to share with the world, to, you know, for other people to join me in saying, hey, this is not okay. And I found myself really alone. So I always wanted to find ways of sharing this knowledge that our planet needs us, that we have to protect it. And I thought that science was going to be the way to do it. Over time, I have come to realize that when you talk to people in a language that they don't understand or that they feel uncomfortable with, it's easier to just reject it. You know, right. nobody wants to feel silly or, or ignorant. So it, it became, it was almost an accident. I realized that people because I was doing these beautiful photo coffee table books and putting all this work in writing the data and the science. And when, when I watched people looking at the books, I could see that they were browsing and stopping at the pictures and reading the captions. And then people felt comfortable enough to ask questions about what was happening in the photographs. And I've always been artistic, but I never set out to be an artist. That's when it dawned on me, you know, wow, we're, we're telling this story the whole, in a whole wrong way. So I went out to become a photographer just because I thought it was a better tool. It's amazing. I think it's inspirational that you had this whole other career and you decided, you know, and also that the cause was so important to you and that the art was really served as a tool for the social issue that you were very passionate about. Um, art has this incredible ability to make us feel something, to make us feel an emotion. And at the end of the day, as humans, it's really our emotions that typically drive us to action more than datas and facts and figures. Not for everyone, but a large part of the population, it seems like. So you made this incredible discovery and you decided to go back to school. All those years later, you said, okay, I'm going to really dive in here. And so I'm curious because there are a lot of photographers, well-respected photographers, who are self-taught. Um, but but you went to the Corcoran College of the Arts. You did the program of photography. What made you decide to do that? And what did you really take away from that program? First of all, I have to completely agree with you that from the beginning of time, when humans uh, became you know social creatures, we have always used art to inform culture. From the paintings in caves to the masterpieces of people like Diego Rivera or Siqueiros, art really tells us what's going on, what's appropriate, how to behave. Uh, and I feel very strongly that uh, as an artist, I have a, a role to play there. Um, I was I was frustrated as a scientist, you know, I. I was producing all these data and I really believed in my heart that some of the contributions that we were making to academia were really important. And if only people paid attention, you know, right. we could just find the solutions. Most importantly, I, I felt that the work that we were creating should be read by people in government to make decisions. But they don't read it. You know, they commission all these studies and then they just put them in shelves and nobody ever sees them. So I 
started to think, you know, that art has this incredible power of mobilizing society. And if only we could create enough of an audience, build enough awareness to a society that cares, we could really turn things around. So that was my belief back then. Uh, I didn't know anything about using a camera, so I'm very self-taught in the mechanics of operating the machine, which is not that difficult. You know, you can Google your way through that. I was so lucky to go to the Corcoran because um, they had an adult education program and I wasn't interested in getting another degree or another certificate. I just wanted to learn. And so two or three times in a week, you know, in the evenings, I would go to this class and it was amazing. All these young people, I was the oldest person in that class, their ideas, you know, they were fearless in the way that they were approaching art, but also learning about the history of art and um, how other artists have approached uh, social environmental issues in the past. I am so grateful that I had that opportunity at the Corcoran and um it also allowed me an opportunity to get out of the house. I had three kids, you know. I, yeah. It was a perfect excuse to find a babysitter <laughs> and go spend a couple of hours doing something amazing. Well, I think that's really inspirational for people in general and also for for moms to know, yeah, take the time to do something for yourself. Get out of the house. Go do it just because you have one kid or two or three or four or however many, uh, doesn't mean that you can't still make it happen for yourself. So I'm curious, you mentioned you had this inkling like, okay, I really think that I can make a bigger impact with the visual storytelling and with the photography. Um, what was the first moment where you actually saw, okay, an image that I took actually did something. It, it, it moved the bar. It, it, it made something change. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing to look back at the beginnings of any uh, artist's career. For myself, uh, I, and I know every photographer that's listening to this is going to agree, you make thousands of photographs that are just snapshots. And then one day, you know, you're able to manipulate the controls of the camera because you begin to understand what everything does. And something comes out that actually looks resembles a little bit like the idea that you had in your head. For me, that happened uh, during a trip to the Amazon, uh, where I was actually borrowing my ex-husband's camera because I didn't even have a camera of my own. And I made a couple of portraits of um, uh, an indigenous man, a Kayapo Indian, coming out of his house. And they came out so beautiful because he was framed against the blackness of the of the house behind them. Uh, it was like a little hut and it had some of the grass hanging from us. I just thought it was beautiful. And when I first saw it, I thought, oh, I actually can do this. <laughs> you know? yeah. I actually can create something that is more than a snapshot. And that was the beginning of a journey of investigating, you know, how do you use a camera to make images? which is very different than just snapping shots. So now when you're in the field, you know, all this experience and time later, what is your creative process? Do you go into it with a story you already want to tell? Are you more, I'm going to hang back and just see what happens and wait for the moment? I am so loosey-goosey. If you have not uh, listened to Paul's or read Paul's, Paul Nicklin's book on uh, how to become a National Geographic photographer, you should, because it's a poster case for how I shoot. He talks about, you know, I think it's the 20, 30, 20, whatever it is, 30, 30, 40. The first part of your time, you spend it creating something that's 
sure, you know, it's a proper exposure. It's a good composition. It's good enough for an editor to say, okay, there's a picture of a turtle. <laughs> the second 30% of your time, you start taking some chances, you know, can I photograph it from a different angle? Can I put a little bit of strobe in it? You know, can I get some motion? And, and that's my sweet spot. That's where I like to work, you know, a right. little more creative, even though it has a much higher risk of failure. I oftentimes come back with something that's quite unique because the question that I need to ask myself anytime I approach a subject is if so many photographers have already photographed something like this before, how do I make it different? How do I make it my own? Right. The last 30% of your time in the field you just spend it going crazy. You know, what happens <laughs> if I go with a very, very long exposure? What happens if I overexpose two stops? You know, just really experiment and try to come back with something wild. And those shots sometimes become quite iconic. Interestingly, Christina's love for photography and the power that it holds was developing at a time when there was often a big disconnect between photographers and the wildlife that they were documenting. Never one to sit back, she saw a void and began advocating for artists like herself to use their work in order to make an impact on our planet. Um, when I was starting my career as a photographer, there was no such thing as conservation photography. Uh, we were all attending these big conferences for nature photographers. And what it was, it was just people that were um, interested in a checklist of species that they had to photograph, you know, so everybody had to have a picture of a polar bear and an eagle and the photographers were marching one after another, photographing the same stuff. I started going to these meetings and I was asking, you know, first of all, I was one of the few women attending these photography events in the 90s. And I was saying, can we use our photographs to try to protect the places where we photograph, to try to, you know, push for more protections for wildlife. And I was told in no uncertain terms that that was not the purpose of photography. Basically, they told me to shut up and sit down. And so I thought, well, I find inspiration in the work of a handful of photographers who at the time were doing just that. So, for example, somebody like uh, Michael Nick Nichols. Nick had gone to, to, the, to the Congo Basin. He walked from Gabon, all the, from Cameroon, all the way to Gabon, 2,000 miles, following the trails of wild elephants and making photographs that he then used to inform a decision-making process to create 13 national parks. I thought, well, that is very different than the dude that's photographing <laughs> to make a calendar. Yeah. <laughs> There's like this, high, <laughs> this higher purpose. You know, so many photographers were just thinking about how do I make money? And there were other photographers who were really putting their images to work. So I wrote a paper defining conservation photography and basically giving it this purpose uh, behind it. The work of the conservation photographer begins after you trip the shutter. It's what you do with those images, how you make them work. And passively putting them out for people to share and follow is not enough. You have to do the heavy duty lifting of connecting with the conservation community, connecting with donors, you know, volunteering and talking to government officials. It is uphill and very few people are able to do it well. But I think when I die, the thing that I'm going to be most proud of is that I created this idea of conservation photography. And today, thousands of photographers are using it as a rallying cry to protect our planet. Over time, as Christina perfected her craft, she realized that she needed a bigger platform to tell the stories that she really cared about. 
And so she and Paul created Sea Legacy, where they would share the imagery they were passionate about and use it to make a difference. They'd fly in top filmmakers and photographers to join them, and truly together, they'd be able to amplify conservation issues to their 15 million followers. Sounds simple, right? Well, three years into the venture, they reached a turning point. It was 2017, and you may remember seeing photographs and video footage of a starving polar bear in the Canadian Arctic. That video and photo? The works of Christina Mittermeier and Paul Nicklin. In the imagery, the emaciated polar bear drags itself along, using all its strength to propel itself forward. It's heartbreaking, but it's imagery that, though difficult to watch, is really important to see. As the images blew up and went viral, it changed the way that Christina viewed her own work and the work of Sea Legacy. You know, two and a half billion people saw it and it was it's an interesting thing, you know, to have a piece of content go viral because it was so raw and so emotional and the reaction of people was what informed what Sea Legacy was about to become. Some people were very grateful that we told the story. Other people were very sad and, you know, I got emails from people that couldn't get out of bed for days because they were so depressed. And other people were downright angry. You know, we got accused of not caring and lying. And, right. and I asked myself, you know, why are people so upset? And it dawned on me that when, and because this has happened to me, you know, when you watch a documentary about something that's devastating and there's nothing you can do about it, you feel worse. Right. So that's when we thought, you know what? Every piece of content we create from now on has to be attached to a call to action. And so we started building this di digital platform called Only One, where every story, every photograph, every article allows you as a viewer to do something about it. So it ranges from let's sign a petition to let's tweet the prime minister. Let's, uh, you know, congratulate the minister of the environment on a win. But most importantly, together, let's crowdfund to move the conservation agenda forward in the foreground. Because the two things that are stopping the environmental movement from really taking off are super simple. The audience is not big enough and it's not organized in a single place. So there's not enough of us who are willing to take an action and who have a place to do it. And number two is environmental work is chronically and systematically underfunded. Imagine this, of all the sustainable development goals that the United Nations has given us, Sustainable development goal number 14, the oceans, is the most underfunded. It's crazy. This is the largest ecosystem on our planet. Right. It moderates our climate. It feeds billions of people. Without it, we'll die. And it doesn't have enough funding. So we started this community of monthly people that give money. And I call, them a, I call it an investment. I don't call it a donation. So people give $5, $100, however much they, you know, I, I say to people, align your values with your wallet. Give us whatever you want. Right. And we're raising a ton of money from that. The, the dream, and it's starting to happen, is 100% of that money goes to smaller conservation heroes in the front lines, the people that are patrolling the beaches to stop poaching, the people that are removing nets and trash. And so... Right now, we're giving about $20,000 away every month. That's great. And it makes such a difference for these heroes. But, but the beautiful thing about it is we get to tell the story of these projects, of these people, of how the money impacts. And I think the, the people that are members of the Tide really love hearing that their investment of time and money and energy pays off, that it's part of a bigger movement.
I know one campaign I saw that you guys are working on now is about sharks in Costa Rica and the killing of sharks that's happening there. Can you share a bit about what's happening and what with Sea Legacy you're hoping to do to enact some change? Absolutely. So we all have this image of Costa Rica as the environmental hero. It's a great place. They care about the environment. Yeah. Well, to our surprise, we found out that Costa Rica protects less than 2% of its ocean. Wow. Um, compared to Panama next door, who protects over 30%. Moreover, Costa Rica has classified sharks, get ready, as agricultural pro- products. So just like Mm. a tomato, a shark can be exported as a commodity. And so our um, petition is to tell the government of Costa Rica that sharks are critically important pieces of an ecosystem and they should be classified as wildlife so that they can be protected. And people really respond to this, you know, because it's crazy. It just makes no sense. Yeah. So we deploy our millions of followers to tell the the president uh, and the minister of the environment of Costa Rica to get their act together because we love Costa Rica, but we will go to Panama instead and spend the (laughs) tourism dollars there instead. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what you have to do, right? Because unfortunately for a lot of these places, the bottom line is money that, Mm -hmm. that comes in and Costa Rica does trade on a lot of PR about, you know, zero emissions and carbon neutral. So it's very surprising to, to hear that. Uh, shocking shocking so we're giving costa rica a chance to get their act together to protect 30 percent of their ocean i mean panama is smaller has a smaller economy and yet they've been able to do it so yeah no excuses costa rica get it done so it's interesting when we talk about the ocean how you mentioned that the un ocean conservation is severely underfunded wildlife conservation as a whole is sort of interesting because I would guess there are some animals that are maybe cute and they get a lot of PR and not that they don't need help, but why do you think it is that it seems like marine life or marine animals, they're sort of classified, I guess, maybe differently. They're not seen, you know, they're not the hot topic maybe that, you know, a lion or an elephant is. I don't know. I find that interesting. Well, there's two things at play here. Number one is marketing. We have learned to look at fish as something that swims in butter on a plate. <laughs> yeah. We don't think as, as about fish as wildlife. Right. Like you don't go on safari to the Serengeti and expect to eat the zebras, you know. So why is it that you go to the Bahamas and expect to eat the grouper? Uh, so I think we need to do a lot of work recasting marine wildlife as wildlife, not just as seafood. Um And by the way, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be eating fish. I'm just saying that we have to rethink which fish and how do we catch it to make it sustainable. Right. But the second part of your question is is the more interesting question, because listen to this. The United States is the most philanthropic and generous country on the planet. Americans donate, on average, $480 billion a year to charity. But where the money goes is very telling. So... Over 30% of that money goes to religious institutions and causes. And then it goes to fund health, education, art. And at the very bottom of that pyramid, 1.8% goes to a big bucket called environment. That includes all wildlife, all climate change, the entire Amazon, all of the forest fires in Australia, plus the ocean and dogs, cats, and horses. So a tiny fraction of our charity money goes to actually protecting the life that supports our planet. 
Um, and of that, communications is just a fraction. So my mission in life is to flip that pyramid on its head and make environment, make planet the most important cause that we fund because our lives depend on it. As always, we ask you to submit your questions for a segment, Ask the Artist. We were overwhelmed by the response for Christina. And so what we don't get to here, we'll be publishing in the coming days on Instagram at Top Artist Podcast and on Twitter at Top Artist Pod. So if you want to hear even more from Christina, check out those channels. Let's get to it. We asked our listeners to submit questions for you. We have so many questions. Oh, good. Some we've sort of talked about, and uh, some we'll cover as many as we can here. And what we can't fit in the episode, we'll we'll put online in another way. So we talked about this a little bit, but I think it warrants asking again. Jackie Trujillo asked, what are some effective ways to combat climate change that one can do even if they don't have a big platform? That is a wonderful question. And I, I think climate change is one of those that is so big, right? So uh, we often feel a little powerless to tackle it. First and most important, the most important thing we can do, because we're all voters in one country or another, is to research the people that are running for office and make sure that they actually sincerely care about tackling climate change as a top priority. Uh, over any other issue, that is the most important one. Second, Yes, it is up to us as consumers to, uh, you know, do the best we can. But the better thing to do is to call the companies that are not tackling climate change accountable for their actions by choosing not to support their products. And it takes a little bit of work to research. Um, one thing that I've done that was super easy and I think it has an enormous impact. I moved my money out of the bank that I used to bank with because they were funding fossil fuel projects and I moved it to another bank that funds instead uh, regeneration of ecosystems. So that was a super easy thing to do. And, you know, why would I want my money to fund uh, the exploration of oil? Uh, so that was easy. Most importantly, and the easiest thing that we all can do, let's speak up. Let's be influencers within our family, within our friends, our school, our job. Let's stop you know, tiptoeing around the issue. Speak your mind up. Tell your colleagues that you this is what you believe in, this is what you're working for, this are your values. And, you know, little by little and through repetition, through conviction, without doing it in an angry or preachy way, your values will permeate to others. At the end of the day, climate change, biodiversity loss is not it's not an issue. It's a, it's a matter of values. We have to change our value system. And it starts with us. Our next question comes from Timo Nicole. And she wanted to know, or he wanted to know, I can't actually see. Uh, how do you find motivation when maybe you don't have any? Which is a common issue that happens sometimes with all of us. Um, thanks for that question, Timo. I get asked that question a lot. And I happen to be an optimist by nature, but I'm also a parent. And I find that I don't have the luxury of dwelling in my own apathy, my own misery, and my own despair. <laughs> if I'm not willing to get up and have a positive outlook on, on what we're doing and have a, a real, honest, sincere belief that we can turn this around, I would not be able to convince anyone. But I am actually convinced that in a single generation, we can restore health and abundance to the oceans and we can tackle the climate crisis. We just have to do what's needed. And so I 
I'm going to channel my Martha Luther King when I tell you that my dream is I had to live on a planet that has a living ocean where humans have abundance of resources to be happy and thrive. And so let's work towards that, shall we? Our next question is an interesting one from Sherm Singh. Is it hard to balance normal life with field work? Such a good question. (laughs) The answer is... uh, That's a loaded question. Because there's no easy answer. And the truth is that if you're a field biologist, if you're a field photographer, your life is littered with neglected partners and abandoned children. And somebody pays the price for this, right? So my advice is find a partner who really believes in what you're doing and who's willing to support you in your life at home or as a partner in the field to make it work because otherwise it's really difficult to sustain. Um, For myself, I was very lucky that my first husband and I had our children when I was so young because I was able to stay at home with them. I didn't really have a career, you know, I was kind of working in the basement and uh, trying to make things happen. (laughs) Uh, But he was very supportive and he, you know, he was the one that was helping me pay for the classes at the Corcoran that was helping me buy my first camera. Without his support, it would have been impossible. And my children were really good. I remember feeling like a terrible parent every time I left. And I asked my daughter, who is now 25, I would say, am I a bad mother? You know, I feel terrible leaving you. And she would say, mom, go. The the planet needs saving. Go save the ocean. Go. I'm okay. So I owe as much to my kids for being so good. So... Our last question, we received a lot of this, a lot of obviously up and coming photographers or also just people who wish, you know, they see your travels and they wish they could do that sort of, you know, how can I start a career in photography or how can I really follow my dream and go out and travel? I mean, you know, I'm sure you get that question a lot. What do you tell people that are looking for advice that seems like such an abstract thing to take the leap and make that change for themselves. It is such a massive leap. And so you cannot do it from a day, one day to the next. It's always a journey. And it was a journey for me as well. I started my career as a photographer photographing people. I was making family portraits and proms and weddings because that was an easy way of gaining skills while making money so that I could pay, I could pay for the real work that I wanted to do. And it it was not overnight. I made so many mistakes and it took me a long time. But um, start small. Uh, Most important thing is to keep your eye on the ball. So I oftentimes talk about this idea of Ikigai. Mm -hmm. It's I-K-I-G-A-I. And it's a Japanese word that means the purpose of your life. And it comes when you find the confluence of four things. It's what you love which is also what you're good at. And remember that sometimes it takes time to become good at what you love. The third thing is that it pays for the bills and it takes time to build a business around these two things. The fourth one is that, it, that it, it's what the world needs. It's finding that purpose for the work. Working towards those four things is not something that you find overnight, at least not for most people. So be patient with yourself. Know that you may have to have two jobs in order to support the one that fills your your soul with joy. But as long as you remember where you're going, you will get there. So start making lists and uh, good luck. Remember, you can hear the rest of your questions, which include finding out how Christina and Paul met over on our social media, which is Top Artist Podcast on Instagram and Top Artist Pod on Twitter. 
As we wrapped up our time together, I asked Christina what type of impact she hoped that her activism and photography would have long-term. Her response was succinct and full of hope. All I want for my work to accomplish is to bring together people for a common cause, and that is to protect our planet. So if I could have a dream for my work, it would be to galvanize a global movement of people willing to act on behalf of our planet. And that's all I want. Incredible. Well, Christina, it has been such a fascinating conversation with you. The work that you were doing is so important and so inspirational for a lot of people. We're honored to have you here with us today to chat with us. Thank you, Jessica. And if you're not a Tide member yet, I hope you will become one. Come be part of our community. Help me save the ocean. I will. I will. So people can do that by going to only.one. Is that correct? Or C Legacy? Yep. Either or. So we are the same organization. Uh, we're two different brands, but we are working towards the same goal. So only.one or C Legacy and join the Tide. Come have fun saving the planet. I want to give a big thank you to Christina Mittermeier for finding time in her busy schedule to speak with us and share her important message. You can follow Christina on Instagram at Mitty, C Legacy at C Legacy, and Only One at Only One. We'll put all the websites and social media links in the show notes for you. Join us in two weeks when my co-host Sarah Barnes will be here interviewing another artist who is making an impact with their work. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to give us a rating or review. It really helps more people discover the podcast. And if you're interested in supporting My Modern Met and the podcast, check out our membership program. Just go to MyModernMet.com and click the membership button in the upper right-hand corner to see all the cool benefits you can get, including ad-free reading. Until next time, don't forget to get your daily fix of art and culture on My Modern Met. See you soon.